0: chapter 4. We'll read verses 15 through verse 20 together. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow together and commit our time to the Lord. Our Father, we come before your word with the confident expectation that you will meet with us here. We thank you that it is in the pages of Scripture that you speak to us even today. And we ask that there would be clarity in explaining this text and clarity in applying this text. And also, Father, that you would help us to hear and to listen to what you have for us in the pages of your word this morning. That you might be glorified here to equip and edify and encourage your people for your glory's sake and for your name's sake. We ask it in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've been looking these last couple of weeks at the subject of giving. And so I have a question for you at the beginning. Does God need our gifts? Our offerings to Him? Does God need us to give to Him? Some of you are wondering, is that a trick question? Is it in how you define the word need? What do you mean by that? Does God need us to give Him our gifts and our offerings for us to be regular, purposeful, persistent, faithful givers? Does God need us to do that? The answer to that is no. Nothing... You can never use the terms God and need together in the same sentence in any meaningful way whatsoever. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. God never acts out of need. He has never done anything out of a need for anything. As Paul said in Acts chapter 17, I think it's verse 25, he said, God does not dwell in temples made with hands as if he can be served by human hands as if he had need of anything. God didn't need creation. He doesn't need any of this creation. He didn't need glory. He didn't create anything out of need. He didn't need fellowship. He didn't need companionship. He didn't need mankind or mankind's obedience. He didn't need to display the manifest glories of His grace to all of creation before the angels. God has never done anything out of need. There is no lack in God. He didn't need to redeem us. He didn't need to send His Son for us. He didn't need to glorify Himself through redemption. In no way can it ever be said that God needs anything. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need our offerings. He doesn't need us. He is the unsustained sustainer of all things, and He is the self-sufficient God of the universe. In no way can it be said that God ever acts out of need or ever does anything out of need or that He ever needs anything. So, does God need our gifts? So, why then are we supposed to give? If God doesn't need it. I mean, if you watch or listen to some... TV preachers, radio preachers, ministries, you get the fundraising letters in the mail, just like I do, you would think that God's whole plan for America, for the world, for the evangelization of the lost, everything hinges upon your faithful obedience. God cannot do anything and America and the world is going to crumble if you don't send in your timely gift right now. Right? But does God need those things? Isn't it true that he could turn rocks to gold if he wanted to provide for something? He could do that. doesn't need me to give him anything. So why then do I give? I give not because God needs it, but because, well, guess what? I need to give. I need to give. Not just for the blessing that it is to me, but there is something therapeutic in the act of giving itself. There is something in me that needs to give to the Lord. So, giving is not something that we do because God needs us to give. He doesn't. Giving is something we do because we need to give. It's an act of worship. It's an act of obedience. And that's what we've been looking at these last couple weeks in Philippians chapter 4. So, we started really this subject on giving back in verse 14, 14, 15, and 16. We saw that the giving, when we give our finances to something, it is a personal involvement in something. It is a way that we become personally involved in the ministry or the missionary or the person or the entity that we support and the work of God, we become personally involved in it through our financial gifts. Then in verse 17, which we looked at last week, we saw that it is a profitable investment. Paul says, I'm asking this or I'm seeking not the gift itself, not that you might give me another gift, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So we give because it is a way for us to be personally involved. We give because we're storing up treasures in heaven and there is a profit which increases to our account in a very real in a very profound way, which we will only realize on the day of Christ Jesus when we finally step into eternity and see what has been laid up for us there. And now, lest we begin to think that giving is merely a personal thing and merely an investment, just merely a a financial transaction, the Apostle Paul in verse 18 of this passage we're going to look at today lifts our eyes off of the here and the now and the us and the me and the prophet and the... Temporal perspective, and he lifts our eyes toward heaven, and he gives us God's perspective on giving. So look at verse 18. This is going to be our focus this morning. Paul says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Look at this. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now that is God's perspective on our giving. So lest you and I begin to think that it's just merely a profitable investment, merely something we do for our own benefit or because we need to, the Apostle Paul lifts our eyes toward heaven and he says, here's what giving is. Giving is not just our involvement, not just an investment. Giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. When we give, we give as an act of worship. Now you'll notice that we don't pass the plate here in church. You notice that? Now there's benefits, there's blessings, and there's drawbacks to that. Let me give you some of the the, the benefits of it. And I understand the arguments on both sides of this because we've had people say you need to pass the plate, you need to put it. I I forget to give unless it passes right across my lap. Well, you got other problems than just forgetting to give. I mean, if giving is a, oh oh give yeah I give they're passing the plate it's offering in the you got other problems and so you should be already purposing to do this and planning to do this and having this laid out as part of your worship, but. Here's the reason why we put the offering box on the table at the back. We don't want, as a church, it's always been our philosophy. And we've never done this since the day I ever started attending here long before I was pastor in this church. It has always been our philosophy that God will provide through people's giving. And they give and they do it and it's by themselves and it's to themselves. And the right hand should know what the left hand is doing. And, and people should just be able to do that and, and not put the pressure on people and just let people give out of the overflow of their heart as an act of worship. And uh, that way it's between them and God, and it's not something we do in front of everybody. And I think there's something to be said for that. I think it's, well, obviously there's something to be said for it, because that's what we do. That only makes sense. That's our philosophy. And so when you give, it's an act of worship between you and God before nobody else. That doesn't mean that you still can't trumpet it when you come in. I mean, you could walk in the, the door there and, have a coughing fit as you're putting the money in the offering box, and everybody looks back there to see who's choking and dying next to the offering box, and there you are putting your big wad of $1 bills in there for a big show in front of everybody. I suppose it's still possible for people to give for the sake of being noticed that way. But then there's the other side, and I understand this, that says, look, I like, as part of our worship service, as an expression of my devotion to the Lord, to be able to offer to God as an act of worship, in the worship service, with the music, surrounded by the Word of God and the people of God, a sacrifice of praise, which is my giving. And so we've had people say, I appreciate having the offering play passed because it's part of the worship service and my giving is an act of worship. And I like to have that in my wallet or in my purse and with me in my Bible and then as part of the worship service, you take that up and it is an expression of worship for me and that's very legitimate and it's true. Because giving is an act of worship. So, Worship, as you walk in past the box at the back, we're not going to start taking up an offering for that reason, but I I understand the sentiment that says, look, giving for me is an act of worship, because it certainly is. And there is a danger, and it's this, that when we walk in before we get into the sanctuary, or the gym as it were right now, you just drop your offering in the box at the back, it becomes disconnected from the actual worship service itself, doesn't it? It has a tendency to do that. So we have to keep it in our minds as we do this, that when I give, I'm not just paying bills, and I'm not just doing my thing like I buy a latte. I'm worshiping, and this is an act of worship, and it should be, and it should be an act of worship that you are engaged in before you ever come here to church. So giving is an act of worship. We're going to notice two things in verse 18. First, we're going to notice that the gift that the Philippians gave benefited Paul, and then second, we're going to notice that the gift the Philippians gave pleased God. It benefited Paul, and it pleased God. Look at verse 18. Paul says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent. I have received everything in full. I mentioned last week that this whole passage is filled with accounting language. We saw it in verse 15. There are three accounting or commercial or financial terms that Paul uses. It's purposeful and it's it's deliberate in him doing it. He uses the term for an account that an accountant would use. When he says, no church, in verse 15, Shared with me in the matter, that is the word for an account, of giving, that is of of, uh, payments, and receiving, that is receiving payments, except you alone. Three financial terms. We saw it again in verse 17. He says, I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Three more financial terms. Here he does it again in verse 18. He says, I have received in full. Apeko is the Greek word, and it means to receive full payment. And in those days, they would, when you paid for a bill in full, they would write across the bill, a peco. And it meant to receive something in full to be paid in full. And so that's an accounting term that the Apostle Paul uses. And it is as if the Apostle were saying, this is my receipt for what you have sent. He uses a term that was basically meant to issue in a receipt for a payment given. This is my receipt to you. I have received in full all that you sent at the hand of Epaphroditus. And Paul notes that he received it in abundance. Verse 18, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I believe that the gift that the Philippians gave the Apostle Paul took the Apostle Paul from a state of poverty or lack or humble means to a state of having more than he needed. It was not that it just came in and met the need barely. When they gave to the Apostle Paul, it was a gift that when it came in, it took him from having almost nothing to having more than he needed. That's why he uses terms like fullness or abundance. It seems to be from every indication that what the Philippians gave him was a, an abundant and generous gift. It was something large. Now, what was it? Was it money? I guess we've kind of been assuming all the way through that this was a financial gift, haven't we? And the accounting terminology that Paul uses, the commercial financial accounting terminology, seems to suggest that this gift was, if not mostly, then totally financial or money, gold or or coins or some sort of money that they gave to the Apostle Paul. I guess it is possible that they also would have given him possessions as well, right? They could have sent him food by Epaphroditus. They could have given to Epaphroditus a coat or clothing or books or some sort of materials or something to give to the Apostle Paul, possessions. I think that this would be a good opportunity to sort of bring back to our mind that even though we're talking in, in discussing stewardship, we're talking about finances Stewardship and being a good steward and giving applies not just to the money that we receive, but it also applies to our possessions. It applies to our possessions. Now I want everybody here to think of a possession that you own. You get a picture of it in your head. It might be your house, it might be your car, it might be a toy, a tool, a recreational vehicle, whatever it is. Think of a possession that you own. Everybody got the picture in your mind? Everybody got it? Okay. There should be nothing in your minds whatsoever. You know why? Because you don't own anything. And I don't own anything. We are merely stewards. We don't own any of it. All of our possessions, be it a house, be it a car, be it a tool, be it a toy, all of our possessions, we are merely stewards of that. We simply handle the accounts of the Lord. Like John Wesley, when somebody came to him after he had been out riding and doing a circuit riding tour, somebody came to John Wesley out on the trail and he said, Mr. Wesley, your house just burned down. And Mr. Mr. Leslie thought about it for a second. He said, well, that's one less thing I have to care about then. He viewed himself merely as a steward of what God had entrusted to him. Same thing with you. Whether it's your finances or whether it's your possessions, you're merely a steward. So I believe it to be true that not only should we look for ways to bless others with our finances and invest our finances in being used for God's purposes, but all of our possessions and any increase from our land or from our produce ought to be used for that, reason, for that purpose as well. Most of you know that I enjoy gardening enjoy it very much. I enjoy producing every year, spring, summer, and fall, not only a variety, but also an abundance of stuff off of my garden and my fruit trees. You know why I do that? Because I believe, and I'm not laying down a law for anybody else, but I believe for myself, I apply this, I tithe off of my land. It's actually more than a tithe, and if anybody here, this is pretty much common knowledge. I probably give more than 50% of what I make on my garden away because it's just more than I could use, more than I ever want to use. And so I just give it away more than, at least more than half of what I get when I'm gardening and when I am, I am planting the garden and tilling the garden and sowing the garden and watering it and nurturing it. You know what I have in the back of my mind always? I can't wait to give this to somebody else or give this to that person. And it's something that I do that reminds me that all of my labor is not just to provide for my own needs, but for somebody else as well so somebody else can enjoy the abundance of that. Now, that's how I keep it in perspective, and that's what I do. I don't believe that's a law for anybody that you have to give a tithe off of your garden, but it's something that I do that sort of lifts my perspective off of just what I'm doing and the here and now and just for me. So I give off of that, except my peach trees. My peach trees don't tithe, but I give extra rhubarb to make up for the peach trees that don't tithe, so it all works its way out. And it and is something therapeutic in doing that because it reminds me that not only is my land to be used for God, and not only or my money, but also my land and my rototiller and my garden equipment and everything else, and my time and my talents and everything that I put into that, God is to receive the glory from that. And it's an act of worship. I enjoy doing that because I'm giving when I give to others from my garden, and a lot of you have benefited from that. It's not just I'm just giving it to you because I have nothing else to do with it. But I actually view it as an act of worship. And it reminds me, all of my possessions are the Lord's, too. It's not just my money. It applies to my money, but it goes beyond that. It goes to the things that we have. But I said that wrong, didn't I? Because we don't have anything, do we? It goes to the things that we steward, the material possessions that we steward. And we should look for opportunities to invest those in the Lord's work. That's what the Philippians did. So the Philippians, I think, largely probably sent Paul financial gift with probably money but it could have been other things as well. Anything that they might have been able to provide to him which would have met his needs, whether it was clothing or whether it was food or whether it was money. And Paul says, I am amply supplied. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied. It was a generous gift. you understand how God funds his projects? He does it through his people. I don't know if you know this or not, but this church does not receive any direct deposit from heaven out of the banking account to meet the needs. The church doesn't receive that. No ministry on the face of the earth receives a check from heaven every month. Some people think that that's the case, but that's not the case. You know who provides for all of the needs of this ministry and any other ministry on the face of the earth? God's people. And that's God's design. He amply supplies for the needs of His ministries. And I don't say God's needs because He doesn't need us to do it, but He will do it. And if we don't do it, He will raise somebody else up to do it and that somebody else will get the blessing and that somebody else will have uh, get the fellowship out of it. And the blessing of it. And the profit of it. So God doesn't need us in the sense of needing us. But He does provide for needs that His people have or His ministry has through people who have the means. So how does God how does God finance a capital campaign? You know how He does it? How did He do it in the Old Testament? How did He finance the tabernacle? Drop gold out of heaven for the tabernacle? No. God's people provided it. How did He provide for Solomon's temple? Drop gold out of heaven? Turn rocks into gold for Solomon's temple? He didn't do that. How did he provide for it? He provided through his people. How did God provide for widows and orphans and the needy and strangers and the poor in the Old Testament? He did it through his people. When his people needed something in Acts 11 with the famine, God took up an offering or the people took up an offering among those who had the means to meet the need of the others. So, how does God provide for those who are hungry and poor? Through his people. How does God provide for missionaries? Through his people. And how does God provide for the things, the ministries that we do as a church? Through us, as people. So when God has a need, which he really doesn't have a need, but I hope you understand what I mean. When there is a need and God wants to do something, how does he do it? He raises up people and he gives them the means. So here's how it works. There's something that needs to be done or a need that needs to be met. God gives the resources for that and he entrusts them into the hands of his people so that they can put them into service for him. And then he turns around and he blesses the person who put his resources into service for him. And he gave them the resources to begin with, but he blesses them for using the resources for him and giving them back to him. And we get the benefit of that. Isn't that marvelous? We get the benefit of enjoying the fact that we get resources put into our hands to meet the needs of others and the ministries that God has called us to do. And we get the blessing. We get the benefit. And that's how God normally does it. Now, there are exceptions to that. He fed Elijah with birds, right? Provided for the temple tax in the fish, mouth of a fish. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. As a general rule, when God wants something done, He capitalizes it or He provides it through His people. And we get the blessing of that. And they sent it by the hand of Epaphroditus. Notice verse 18. I'm am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent. Now, what do we notice? What do we know about Epaphroditus? This, I think, is fascinating and it introduces us to a key principle about giving. What do we know about Epaphroditus? If you, if you flip back to chapter 2, Look at verse 25, and I want to give you a reminder of the type of man that Epaphroditus was. Chapter 2, verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now look how Paul describes him. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. He was longing for you all, and he was distressed, because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him and not only on me, but also not only on him, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I will be less concerned about you. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Acts chapter four. What type of a man was Epaphroditus? He was Paul's fellow worker, fellow laborer, his brother, a man who was dear to Paul's heart. He was a man who, when he got to Paul to deliver this gift, he was likely at that time already sick. And he was sick even to the point of death. And Paul feared for his death. And Paul thought, if God doesn't have mercy on him, Epaphroditus is going to die. And this would have devastated Paul. This would have been a tremendous loss to Paul. But God had mercy on Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus was the type of man that, having been commissioned by the church to a task... Even when faced with death, even being sick to the point of death, Epaphroditus didn't turn back. But he completed his service to the Lord. He was a faithful man. A faithful man. So when the Philippians wanted to entrust a gift to the Apostle Paul and to send it by somebody's hands, who did they look for? They looked for a faithful man. And friends, this introduces us to a key point about giving. When we give, whether it is whether this describes the ministry to which we give, or whether it describes the men and or, and or women who oversee the finances in the church, they ought to be faithful men. They ought to be faithful men. I think you would be amazed at what many Christians give their money to, thinking that they're giving to the Lord. And they're committing their finances to men who are not faithful and to ministries that are not faithful, and they waste their money, and they use it prolifically for their own ends, Millions and millions and millions of dollars every year among evangelicals to causes like that. They don't give them over to faithful men. When we commit our money to the Lord, we ought to be committing it into the hands of faithful men and women. You don't take somebody who can't oversee their own finances and never gives them their own finances, and then give them oversight over the finances of God's money and God's church. You don't do that. That's foolishness. And you don't take up. A, you don't ask for volunteers. Is there anybody here who would like to be our new treasurer? Anybody? Oversee large sums of money, most of it cash? Anybody here would like to do that? Do that on a week-by-week basis? Any volunteers? You know what you would get? People who love money, people who love power. And those are the last people you want overseeing God's resources. But those are the type of people who will volunteer for that. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that as elders, we have no idea who gives what to this church or, or how much people give or whether people give regular or irregularly. We never see the checks. We never see the receipts. We never count the money. There's a reason for that, a lot of good reasons for that. But then it may have caused some of you to ask, well then, who counts the money, where does it go, and who oversees that? And since a lot of you here don't know, let me explain what happens. We have five faithful men and women that the elders affectionately refer to as those wonderful stewards, and we refer to them as those wonderful stewards because they oversee all of the budgeting and the finances of the church, and money, when it is brought in, is counted by two or three people and it is notes are taken and records are kept and then they're deposited and all of that is kept track of and then the stewards oversee the budget and they design the budget and they oversee who gets paid what and how much and where and who gets reimbursed for what and where money is spent. They oversee all of that. Faithful men and women who do that. And the benevolent fund, when we give money for poor or for the poor or the needy among us, that benevolent fund is overseen by the deacons. Faithful men. We don't ask for volunteers to do that stuff. It's overseen by other people. I had a pastor friend of mine who, uh, from the time that he planted the church that he pastored, he was not only the pastor, but the treasurer. So all the money that came in, he oversaw it. He had the checkbook. He wrote himself the check for his own salary out of that. Did this for like 10 years. And finally, I told him, I said, that's, that's fine in the beginning. But certainly, there has to be somebody in your congregation, a faithful individual that you can entrust that to and get that of. You need to stop doing that. Because from my perspective, it was a lack of oversight and a lack of accountability. Now, I had no reason at all, no reason at all, to distrust his loyalty, his fidelity, his sincerity, or his integrity. I had no reason to suspect that. I don't think anything improper was going on. But I told him, you are a target for false accusations if you keep that up. And you're going to be doing prison ministry from the inside someday. You need to get out of that and stop it and find a faithful man to to oversee that, those resources and that job. So they sent it by the hands of Epaphroditus, who was a faithful man. And that's the type of people, men and women, who should be overseeing God's finances. So, the gift that the Philippians sent, it benefited Paul. But I want you to know, second of all, that it, blessed, or it pleased the Lord. The rest of verse 18, Paul describes it from God's perspective, what their gift looked like. What you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, lest you and I think that our giving is merely a financial transaction, merely something we do from a distance, it's cold, it's distant, it's sort of... Um, Unemotional and not an act of worship. It's just a matter of purchasing something or we just give off the top. Lest we think that, the Apostle Paul, I think, purposely changes from the accounting, business, financial, commercial language that he was been using for the rest of the previous part of this passage. Now in verse 18, he switches that to the sacrifice worship language that would bring back images and uh, recollections of the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. That's why he calls it a fragrant aroma. An acceptable sacrifice. Something that was well-pleasing to God. Those are the three descriptions that he gives. The first one, a fragrant aroma. This is a very interesting Greek word that Paul uses. It's spelled O-S-M-A-N. And it means odor. Now, I'm not quite sure what to do with that at this point. That when you take the letters of my last name and translate them into Greek, it spells the word for odor. So now it can honestly be said that it stinks to be me. That's the truth. My name does not mean odor, Osman, but that's at least one way you can remember this Greek word, Osman, odor. But here it's used in a positive sense. It's not used as something that stinks, thankfully. It's it's used as something that smells good in the sight of God. And it would have brought it should bring to mind to us a, a marvelous image that as something was given on the offering, on the altar, or sacrifice to the Lord, when it was burnt, when it was brought before God, that the scent of that thing was pleasing to the Lord. It was fragrant to him. It's a word that was used to describe Noah's sacrifice in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter eight, after he got off the boat, he offered to the Lord that sacrifice, eight twenty one, I think it is. It was also used to describe all of the Levitical sacrifices and offerings in the book of Leviticus and Exodus. It was also used in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, to speak of the offering of Christ. That He offered Himself to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. So it's a word that was used to describe that which was given to God that pleased Him. It pleased not just His heart, but it was fragrant to the Lord. It had a sweet reasonableness, a sweet smell about it. Something that pleased the Lord. As a fragrant aroma and an acceptable sacrifice. That word sacrifice is used to describe sacrifices from the Old Testament, any sort of sacrifice, anything offered to God, whether it was grain, whether it was animals or whether it was money, it was something that was given to the Lord. That's the word that's used. And it was well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, let me break down those last three by just two, two points. I think one of these things should be of conviction to us and another one should be encouraging to us. Here's the convicting part. Let me give you that first. What God, how God views our offerings and our, our, our money or our gifts to Him, He views them as a sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice, and as pleasing aroma. Now I ask you this, if we give to God that which costs us nothing, is it a sacrifice? If we give to God that which costs us nothing, to what extent can it be said to please God if He is pleased with the sacrifice? Because one of the ways that I demonstrate my love for somebody is by giving up something for that individual. Husbands, you do this for your wives. Wives, you do this for your husbands. You give up something or you sacrifice something for them. And when they sacrifice something for you, then you understand that's an expression of love. So when I give something to someone that costs me something that I have to give up for them, it's an expression of love or an act of love. It is the same way when we give to God. If I give to God that which costs me nothing, it's not a sacrifice, is it? People can give without sacrificing anything. That's why I have said before, the person who gives $10 a week to the Lord may be giving more than the person who gives $1,000 a week to the Lord. Why is that? Because there are people who can give $1,000 a week to the Lord. It doesn't cost them anything. It doesn't change their lifestyle. They don't have to sacrifice anything. They don't hurt. They don't ache over it. It's not a sacrifice in any meaningful sense. It's if they can give a thousand dollars just like buying a latte, it's all the same to them. Because it's, it's meaningless. It's just a thousand bucks. I give a thousand bucks to the Red Cross. I give a thousand bucks to the local Elks Club or to Trout Unlimited or something like that. No big deal. It's just a thousand bucks. But the person who gives ten dollars and who gives out of their lack or their poverty or their humble means is giving something that is far more pleasing to the Lord than the person who gives a thousand dollars and it doesn't affect them. You understand that? I think that there will be people in heaven Who have given to the Lord small amounts, but it cost them greatly. Whose treasure will be greater, whose reward will be beyond anything imagined by us. And it will be far greater than the person who gave $1,000 a month or $10,000 a month and it didn't affect them at all. Why? Because of what I'm giving, if I don't have to go without something in order to give something, it's not a sacrifice. So I think it is legitimate for us as Christians to be at times willing to say, God... I'm going to go without this. Because offering to you what I would normally spend on this means more to me than this. That's a sacrifice. Uh, David understood this principle. In the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter nine. David, Chapter 29, sorry. 2 Samuel chapter 29. 2 Samuel first Samuel. Ah, I, I hate when I do that. It's, um, just read the end of every book in the Old Testament. You'll eventually see this story. David took a... a, a census of the people which displeased God, and God sent a pestilence. And David was agonized over this, and so the Lord sent through Gad and said to David, Go up to the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, and offer to the Lord a burnt offering there. So David did it, and as Arana saw David coming up, he said, Who am I, my king, that you should come up to my threshing floor and offer a sacrifice here? And David said, I want to purchase the threshing floor from you to offer a sacrifice, a burnt offering to the Lord my God. And Arana said to him, Take it all. My king, take it all. Take the oxen for the animal. Take the wood and the implements for the fire. Take the threshing for it. i give the whole thing to you. It's all yours. And David said, no, I will buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer to my God as a burnt offering that which cost me nothing. Why did David say that? Because he knew he could turn around and offer something to God, which was of no personal sacrifice, which came to him free of charge. It didn't cost him anything. He wasn't out anything. And is that a sacrifice? That's not a sacrifice. Is that worship? Only in form is it worship. Only in form it's worship, but not in substance. And listen, for those of you, and I am among them, who give regularly to the Lord, purposefully to the Lord, and intentionally to the Lord, one of the dangers that we face is viewing our giving as something else that we do. We get our check in. We take off whatever it is. We write the check. We bring it to church. We drop it in the offering box. And to us, it becomes just like another bill, just like another obligation. And it ceases to become a sacrifice, and it can cease to become worship. Because there are times when we can give. It doesn't cost us anything. And when we do that, then our offering becomes merely worship in form, but not in substance. It's merely formalism. It's an outward worship. We're doing it because we're paying a bill. We're doing it because this is what we've always done. And this is how much we've always given. But where's the heart in all of that? That's the danger for regular givers. That it becomes so much a habit that we don't even think about it anymore. We just give. And it ceases to be attached as an act of worship to our hearts. Now, that's the convicting part. And I ask you this. And I ask myself this. When God looks at my, my giving, does he see it as a sacrifice? Does he know that it's a sacrifice? To do that. Now, second, here's the encouraging part. It's well-pleasing to God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, we have as our ambition, whether absent or whether present here, to be well-pleasing to Him. That should be the consuming passion of every believer, to please the Lord. I want my ways to please God. I want all of my acts and all of my words and all of my deeds and my motives and my intentions and everything I do to be pleasing to Him. So, I can look at my giving and I can know that when I give and when it is a sacrifice, when I offer it to the Lord as an act of worship, it pleases Him. And I want to know that it pleases Him. Because if I hear only one thing on Judgment Day, well done, good and faithful servant, that will be enough for me. That's all I want to hear. And in everything, all I desire is to be pleasing to the Lord. I want to be faithful, I want to be diligent, I want to be obedient, but I want to know that He is pleased. And we can know that He is pleased when we give to Him our sacrifices And And when we give, it's not merely a financial transaction, it's not just a profitable investment or a personal involvement, it's also an act of worship, and it's an act of worship with which God is pleased. And there will not be, Jesus promised, a single cup of cold water given in His name that is not rewarded. He is keeping the records, and anything that He can reward, He will reward, and He will reward it generously. There is nobody who has given up houses and lands or anything in this life that will not be, not be rewarded a hundredfold in the life to come. Do you believe that? I believe if we could pull one of the Philippians out of heaven right now and have him stand here in front of us. And we were to ask him, let's just make it Epaphroditus. And we were to ask him, the gift that you sent to the Apostle Paul, did it cost you guys? I think he would say, yeah, it cost us. Now, having been in heaven for nearly 2,000 years and looking around there and knowing what you know now, Was it worth it? What do you think he would say? Friends, I believe if it pleases the Lord, if it pleases the Lord, we will find that it's worth it. We will always find that it's worth it. Because he will reward, and he will reward diligently, he will reward thoroughly, and he will reward generously every act of obedience, every sacrifice, every good deed, and every gift that is given to him. Does God need our offerings? He doesn't need the offerings, does he? He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. But He has given to us the privilege and the benefit of offering to Him sacrifices as an act of worship. So we give it to God as an act of worship, and that pleases Him, and He will reward the faithful and the diligent giver. The gift that the Philippians gave, it benefited Paul, but it pleased God. And that's more important. It pleased God. When we give to provide for a need, and as an offering of worship to God, He is pleased with it. And it should be our ambition, whether absent or present, to be well-pleasing in His sight. Let's bow together. Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You, Father, that You have abundantly blessed us beyond all imagination, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. And You have bestowed every spiritual blessing upon us in Christ. We thank You that salvation has brought all of that. But even now, Lord, as we are sit in the lap of such abundance and luxury and generosity that You have provided to us, We pray, God, that you would be using this passage to make us good stewards of all that you have entrusted to us, that we might honor you from our first fruits, that we might honor you from the uh, abundance that you give to us, and help us to realize that you are the one who bestows all possessions, all riches, and all honor. And it is for your glory that you do that, and make us good and faithful stewards of it, that you might be glorified here, and that that we might be waiting for an abundant reward and treasure in heaven. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen.